0: Looking to refresh your closet, home, or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware. Go to Walmart.com/slash now trending. That's Walmart.com slash now trending for the hottest fashion, home, and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart. BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today I'm joined by Dr. Adrian Owen, a cognitive neuroscientist who discovered how to communicate with patients in vegetative and coma states. Now, these are patients who, usually after some kind of accident, are left unable to move, talk, or feed themselves. And in effect, Adrian's work gave these patients a way to tell the world that they were there, conscious and awake. And better still, it gave those caring for them a means to improve their care. Adrian's career is well documented in his book, Into the Grey Zone. And today he joins us to talk about his groundbreaking work, how it evolved over time, and how the advent of brain-machine interfaces might improve the lives of patients in comas and vegetative states so commonly we we talk about comas people know about comas and vegetative states um but there are actually different types of patients that you you work with aren't there
1: that's right yes i mean coma is what people typically see in hollywood movies it's where a patient is neither awake nor aware so they have eyes closed they typically don't move they lie uh, in a hospital bed and you know they're typically like that in the first few days or weeks after a very serious brain injury vegetative state is something actually that's quite different because these patients open their eyes and they'll actually you know look around the room they don't look at anything in particular they have no sort of purposeful you uh, visual responses but they, they 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 in some senses they're they're animated uh that that's not to say they get up and walk away or anything but they they do open their eyes and and sort of look around the room and they'll they'll go to sleep they have normal or or semi-normal sleeping and waking cycles um, you know they do automatic things like yawn and and cough so uh, that, that's really the main difference is the is the um is, is sort of how animated they are
0: and is that, is that where your work has mostly focused, with, with patients in vegetative states? Or is it-
1: yes, until, until a couple of years ago, everything I've been doing for the last 20 years or so has been either in patients who are in a vegetative state or in a very similar condition known as the minimally conscious state. And that's a situation where patients can often appear to be vegetative, but they can at least respond to you in some way albeit um, a little bit unreliably so typically they might be able to sort of move their finger if you ask them uh, not not frequently enough to be able to communicate or anything but there's some indication that they are aware those are called minimally conscious patients and those in the vegetative state are the patients that, that I've focused most of my work on.
0: I think again just dipping back into the I suppose the, the pop culture uh, view of this it's often likened to like a sleep or, or going under uh, general anesthesia. Is that is that true or is that a bit of a, a misconception?
1: It's actually a complete misconception. I mean, you know, one of the things that happens to almost every student or trainee that comes to work with me is is, you know, they'll go into the ICU to start examining a, you know, a coma or a vegetative state patient. And they typically come away really quite shocked um, because they, they're nothing like uh, they appear in the movies. I mean, these people have typically had very serious injuries to get yourself into a coma. Um, you may have had a you know a very severe blow over the head. Uh, you may have had a you know cardiac arrest or a stroke, or and, and all of these things you know tend to leave people in a in a pretty poor condition. They're not the sort of peaceful, sleeping beauties that we see in the Hollywood movies. That's really, in fact, that's something that I've never really seen in in all the years I've been doing this.
0: I wanted to touch on this because it's something I remember distinctly from your book, The Grey Zone, which I I really greatly uh, enjoyed a few years back. Um, How how did you come into this field in the first place? What what brought you to start sort of investigating consciousness uh, in these patients?
1: Well, my, my background is in is in psychology and in in neuroimaging. Uh, I am what we now refer to as a cognitive neuroscientist, which is means that I use tools like you know MRI and PET scans to try and understand how the brain works. I'd been doing that for about uh, twenty years um, when working at Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge. Uh, one of my colleagues brought a patient to my attention. He said, "You know, there's a a patient in a vegetative state on the ICU. Perhaps you should scan her." And the reason he said this is because you know that that was my background. I was the sort of local brain scanning guy. I uh, was used to at that point used to putting healthy people uh, into the scanner to see what their brains did when we asked them to to do things uh, or to think about things. But this was this really intrigued me. The idea that we could take a vegetative patient and and really it was. The question we were asking was very open-ended. We were just wondering, well, is there anything going on? Will, will we see anything in there? I mean, I think really we expected to see nothing. But um, the patient who, that we scanned on that day, we we put her into, into a PET scanner and we asked, uh, Oh, in fact, we showed her pictures of her friends and family. And again, that was based on my background and work that I'd been doing. At that point, we knew quite a lot about which parts of the brain are involved in Perceiving and recognizing familiar faces. So, by showing this patient familiar faces, friends and family, we reasoned that well, if if we sh- if there's anything going on, we'll see activity in those areas of the brain that we know are involved in in that sort of processing. And you know, that's exactly what happened. Um, I think it was an enormous surprise for all of us. I think, we, as I said, we really expected probably to see nothing, but her, her brain lit up really like a, a healthy participant's brain would light up if, if we'd done the same thing to them in the scan. And that was really the, the start of the of the whole journey.
0: You went on then to produce, I guess what's quite, quite now quite a famous piece of work, at least in, in scientific circles, where you were able to actually communicate with a patient in a vegetative state, which had never been done before, and had effectively saved their life, you know, it proved that they were conscious to some degree so for people who might not be familiar with that could you just explain the kind of how you went from that initial study to the follow-up and and the results that you got
1: of course i mean i should say you know it was almost 10 years work actually to do that and the re- the reason is because there are many things that the brain does completely automatically i mean face recognition you know is an example of that when you see somebody that you know in the in the street you don't decide to recognize your face their face uh, your brain just automatically does it and you know anybody listening to this this podcast assuming that they can speak english that they can't decide not to understand me you know c- speech comprehension as as we we call it is is not something that is 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 something that you consciously decide to do and by the time we uh, you know we got to two thousand and six, which uh, you know as you've said was sort of a, a breakthrough study, we came to realize that many of the things that we were seeing happening in the brains of supposedly vegetative patients could just be sort of automatic responses you know brain reflexes, if you like um, you know speech comprehension is is one example of that face recognition is another, and we realized that we had to come up with another way of doing things that would actually show us that the person was conscious it wasn't just that their brain was automatically responding and the way we reasoned this through was: we thought, well, how do you do this you know, at the bedside? And everybody listening to this will have seen a, a, you know, a TV show where a doctor grabs a, a comatose patient's hand and says, squeeze my hand if you can hear me. Well, if the, if the patient squeezes the doctor's hand, the doctor knows that the patient is conscious. In fact, they know a lot more than that. They know that the patient can understand language and they can turn that instruction into a, a, you know, a physical action. Now, we know that vegetative patients can't respond in that way. In fact, by definition, they can't make physical responses. So we thought, well, could they make a brain response? If we put a patient into the scanner and said, well, imagine doing this or imagine doing that, as long as we knew what the brain should do, what the healthy brain should do, if the person did it, if they produced that brain response we would know that they were conscious for the same reason as when you when you feel that hand squeeze, you know, the patient's conscious. So we chose to ask the first patient in 2006 that we, we achieved this with, we asked her to imagine she was playing a game of tennis. And that's not because there's a tennis playing area of the brain or anything. It's just because we wanted to find an easy way to get her to vigorously wave her arms or imagine waving her arms around in the air. And we know that that will activate a part of the brain known as the premotor cortex. Uh, it's just a part of the brain that's involved in sort of setting up complex sequences of, of movements in your body. And when somebody, when a healthy person lies in the scanner and thinks that they're, or imagines playing tennis, you get this lovely activity in, the, in this one region of the brain. And in 2006, we, we had a patient who'd supposedly been vegetated for several weeks. We said, imagine playing tennis, and boom, that part of the brain just lit up. You know, we waited 30 seconds and we said, "Okay, now stop imagining playing tennis, an activity in that area. The brain stopped lighting up. We thought, we'll we'll, we'll try this again. Hang on. Imagine playing tennis. Boom. The brain lit up. You know, the way I tried to describe this is it's really exactly as if we'd asked her to squeeze a hand and then stop squeezing the hand and squeeze the hand several times. But we just said, you know, if you're conscious, if you can hear us. Activate this part of your brain now. And that—and that's exactly what happened. And that's how we really made the the, the the big leap, I think, from simply showing that some of these patients' brains had some residual function, they could still respond, perhaps reflexively, to actually showing that many of these patients are conscious, they are aware, they know who they are, where they are, and the predicament that they're in.
0: There's, a, there's an absolute... Ton of questions that follow up from that, and I feel like it's worth saying, if you do want to find out more about all of this than it that it is in your book, which documents this whole process very well. But for the listeners, what 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 were the consequences of that moment, just in terms of patient care? Uh, Because you'd obviously had a person in a vegetative state, and if a patient is in that state, there are lots of questions being asked about how they should be treated and whether their life should be prolonged, etc. So what? What happened after that That um, eureka moment, I guess?
1: For me, the, the main consequence of, of that one study uh, was immediately people stopped treating these patients as though they weren't aware. And, and I mean, as I say in the book, it's, it's, it's human nature, and I, I don't blame anybody for this, but very often these patients are, are, are neglected, not in the sense that they don't receive care, but, you know, people don't talk to them. They don't try and interact with them. And, that, you know, it's, it's human nature. If somebody gives you nothing back month in, month out, you know, very often you, you just sort of give up. And, you know, in that sense, they're sort of socially neglected, I think. And that really seemed to change overnight. I mean, it certainly happened for the patients I was I was seeing at the time. And and many of my clinical colleagues since then, when they've been sort of reflecting on the the you know the the discovery and what impacts it's ha- it, it had, that you know they'll often say things like, "Well, no, you know nobody ever assumes that one of these patients is unconscious anymore." You know, I, I don't know that the impact has been that wide, but but I, I think in you know anybody who's familiar with the study and the fact that you know we were able to show that a, a patient who. A, completely appeared to be vegetative clinically was in fact completely aware I think anybody and you know many many people are now aware of that finding I think those people change very much change their behavior you know around the patient you're obviously careful of the sorts of conversations you're having actually interact with the patient and try to the extent that it's possible to to involve them in the conversation yeah they can't contribute but you can still address them as as human beings. so you know I think in many ways that's that's the biggest impact for the, for the patients themselves.
0: You know, that wasn't the sort of be all and end all as well. It, it, that ability to communicate then led to treatment avenues, I suppose. I don't know if that's the right way of phrasing it, but you did have a number of patients who recovered after that sort of first contact. Was the act of sort of acknowledging their presence, as you said, sort of touched on before, Did it did it seem to give them hope or maybe hope's a bit of a emotional word, but give them something to, to sort of um, focus on?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's one I've pondered many times since. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's quite interesting that over the course of 20, 25 years that I've been working with these patients, you know, very, very few of them actually go on to make a, a significant recovery. But actually, I can think of three examples, you know, patients who have done very well, and they were all really at the centre of um you know a big sort of media storm after you know one of our studies came out in the academic press. And you know what happens in these situations, one obviously has to be very careful because you you can't get you know consent from the, the patient. But it's often inevitable that you know people get very excited. Uh you know there are documentaries made about this. There have been books written, fictional books, um you know we've had stories on the X Files and uh, Gray's anatomy, all sorts of programs have been made about these patients now based on on that discovery and you know what happens is they get an an awful lot more input than they used to you know families start to talk to them again nursing staff start to you know just to chat to them once they realize that they're actually there and they're you know they're they're inside and of course we get very involved I mean one of the patients that we saw Early on in this process, we scanned I think 17 times, and so you know he was seeing me and my staff several times a week for many months, um, and of course that was a lot, a lot more interaction than he never had before. And it's hard to escape, and this is completely anecdotal. I have, really don't have any scientific evidence to back this up, but it, it's hard to escape the idea. I think that you know perhaps all this positive input that it's going into them, all this encouragement and and, and socialization, is perhaps contributing in some way to, to them to them improving. As I say, we, we we don't have enough data to to show that that is the case, but I find it remarkable that. Yeah, you know, the three big stories we'd had over the years. All three of those patients actually went on to do quite well. And to add a little context here, what,
0: what was the sort of because you did you sort of travelled quite a lot around the country, finding patients in vegetative states. What was uh, I suppose the the success rate, the the rate at which you were able to communicate with patients? Um, how, So how, how I, I, I should it?
1: probably just describe a little bit about what what we mean or what you mean when you say communication. Um, I mean after basically getting somebody to imagine playing tennis to show that they're they're conscious we we used a, a variation on that t- technique to actually get people to some of these patients to answer yes or no questions and i'll you know I, I won't overcomplicate it but you know for example if you were in the scanner we would say things like you know okay um i'm going to ask you a question if the answer is yes imagine playing tennis and we would look for that signal in the premotor cortex and In that way, we managed to communicate with quite a few patients getting uh, actually yes and no responses to a a lot of questions, both questions um, that that we could use to verify that they really were communicating with us, that was generally facts about their lives. You know, is is your father's name this or is your father's name that? Uh, But also uh, some sort of clinically relevant questions like, are you in any pain? Is there anything we can do to make you more comfortable? You know, these sorts of things. So that's sort sort of how we... Went on to communicate, and, w- and what we found is in our sample of patients. And I think in, in 2010 we published a paper with I think 54 patients, and 20% of them were not as they appeared to be at all. 20% of these patients could respond, um, and although we didn't actually communicate with all of them, I, it's reasonable I think to assume that they they could communicate. I mean, 10, what is it, 10, 11 years on. More than a thousand patients have been tested using these techniques now, not, not just in, you know, my center here in Canada, but in, in many places in the world that have adopted this technique to try and look for signs of consciousness and communicate with these patients. So more than a thousand patients. And again, the overall number is, is about 20% of them are able to respond and communicate despite being completely physically non responsive so it's an important message there I mean really it's that not all vegetative patients are conscious you know we we're, we're talking about a minority, twenty percent of them, but also bear in mind there are hundreds of thousands of these patients around the world and they'll survive often for for decades so we're talking about many many people, twenty percent of a very very large number uh, this is a lot of people that have been treated one way or assumed to be one thing sometimes for one or two decades when in fact it turns out there's something else entirely.
0: And that volume of people affected I suppose brings um, brings me quite nicely to the next question which is so since then we've also been doing lots of different research but one thing we spoke about in the past was um, trying to find ways to make this work Um, make this body of work something that can actually improve patients' lives. So, so yeah, I'm just curious to to know what what you've been doing since then to kind of get this into hospitals and get get an intervention at the point where it most matters.
1: Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Um, About three or four years ago, I realised that although you know we could do these fantastic things, like discover that people are conscious and you know communicate with them, and I've written that whole story in in the book, as you've you've kind of mentioned, it wasn't clear what we can do for these patients beyond asking them questions, like you know, are you warm? Are you cold? Are you in pain? Which is, I, I think, contributes meaningfully to their quality of life, but of course, it doesn't didn't change their lives in the sense that it doesn't bring them out of their vegetative state. And this is where the you know the work with coma comes in. Now, the problem with the vegetative state is um, these patients aren't typically on sort of so called life support systems. In some senses, they can often be quite healthy despite the fact that they're vegetative. They're not sort of their heart pumps normally. They breathe unassisted. Obviously, you you have to feed them and provide them with hydration because they can't they can't do that themselves. But they can survive for for many decades. Uh, you know, like this. And because of that it 's very complicated if a decision is made to allow them to die or you know to, to, you know it's, if it 's decided that they don 't have sufficient quality of life or there is reason to let them die in most civilized countries it involves a court case and a prolonged amount of sort of decision making and you know, the decision sometimes is that they should be allowed to die and in which case nutrition and, and hydration are are withdrawn but it 's sort of very complicated. The other sort of side of this coin is, is coma. In the first few days after a serious brain injury, when those patients are in the ICU, let say you've had a patient that's gone through the windscreen of a car, totally unconscious, terrible brain injury, they're in the ICU. Then in the first few days, a decision will be made about the likelihood of them recovering. Are they going to recover? Are they going to have a meaningful recovery, or are they going to be like this for the rest of their lives or, or turn into a, a vegetative patient? And there there is what one might refer to as a, as a window of opportunity. Um, the clinical staff uh, the family together make a decision about whether to to use the colloquialism pull the plug I mean these patients typically are on life support, and you you literally Pull the plug and they 'll die within a, you know a, a few minutes. That happens to many, many patients around the world uh, if you go If you end up in the ICU with a very serious brain injury there 's a very high chance that you 're going to die, but you won 't die of natural causes you 'll die because a decision is made that you 're going to have no meaningful life. I realized about three years ago we could take all of this work that we 'd sort of done in the in the long term vegetative patients and actually take it into the i c u What about if we could actually find patients that had a better chance of recovery than others? What about if we could overturn the, the, deci- the way decisions are made about whether people in the ICU should be given a chance uh, or not? Now, I don't have a strong op- opinion about this. I'm not coming from a position where I think everybody should be kept alive because obviously there are emotional and economic reasons why these decisions you know, are made when they're made. But if we can get better at predicting who would have had a good recovery, then I think we're we're in a much better, a much stronger position. So all the work that I've been doing for the last two or three years has been in these sort of comatose patients. We we take patients in the, typically about uh, five to 10 days after an injury. We do the same thing. We put them in the scanner or put electrodes on their head to look for signs of residual activity. We try to communicate with them um, and try to better understand both exactly what their condition is as far as the extent of their brain damage, but also whether or not, all other things being equal, they are likely to survive uh, and what that survival might look like. And we're making huge, huge progress in that respect. I mean, it's worked actually much better than I, I could have ever believed it would work. We really are uh, getting to the point where we can Im- improve our ability to predict the good the good outcomes from the, from the bad outcomes.
0: And so when when we started talking about this, and, and sort of when you started this research, you would, we were talking about fMRI scanners, which are these absolute hulking great machines that you put patients in, and you can't wheel them around. Although I think there they used to be a, a psychologist who had one in a trailer once in America. But um, that, that's by the way. But you've, you've managed to shrink the technology and the technique, I suppose, down to things like EEG. Uh, scanners which are kind of available in most sort of good hospitals aren't they what are the other so there's the tech side that you shrunk and that, that'd be interesting to hear about but also what what are the other barriers um to this sort of because when you hear about it you think yeah that should be clearly that should be in most hospitals and so it leaves me wondering what what is blocking it in a sense
1: well i think the thing that's really blocking it is is inertia to be honest i mean you know some of these discoveries we made uh you know getting on for 15 or 16 years ago now and i you know i for one think that any patient uh, who is able and there, there are some patients who can't go into an mri scanner because if you have parts of metal parts in your body for example you you mm-hmm. can't do it but for any patient who's able who's had a serious brain injury for whom the that the the prognosis or what's going to happen to them is uncertain. I, I I think they all deserve to to get into an MRI scanner and, but you know for that to go from being a research tool to being widely used in clinical practice does require that the various regulatory bodies that decide what's what's an appropriate treatment and what isn't uh, make that decision. And if they made the decision, yes every patient deserves an fmri scan we would be in a very sort of different place today but you know there are there are economic reasons there are some there are some practical considerations i mean most of the discoveries that we made were were made on um not the sort of mri scanner that is in every hospital it's typically um i mean it's it's a a sort of a, a Rolls Royce of an MRI, if you like, um, which just basically means it's, it's a bit more powerful than the most hospital scanners. But as you, we, you know, we tried to mitigate this whole issue by showing you can you can do much the same thing on a, you know an old hospital scanner. We're we're, we're fortunate or, or unfortunate, uh, however you want to think about it. Here in in London, Ontario, where I'm sitting right now, we have the oldest MRI scanner in North America in our hospital it is going to be replaced soon but right now it's 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 about 20 or so years old uh, I, I mean it, it's it's it, it's not the it's it's the oldest working scanner it's still going it's still scanning patients day in day out and we used that scanner to to show a few years ago that actually you can do the same thing you obviously have to make a few compromises and it's not quite as 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 clear and reliable as it is with the sort of state-of-the-art research scanner but you can you can do it on a sort of cheap and cheerful hospital scanner and I tell you if you can do it on the scanner we have here in, in London, Ontario, then you can do it on pretty much any, any hospital scanner, you know, around the world, but it requires people to dedicate themselves to it. You know, it's, it, it's not something actually, I, I guess it is like a, I was going to say, it's not like a blood test, but in many ways it is like a blood test. I mean, probably most of us could be trained to, to take blood, but you know, it requires some expertise and some machinery behind the scenes to analyze a blood sample to decide, you know what's you know what the answer to whatever the question the the person that wrote the prescription had. It's the same thing with with the, the MRI that we use. It's it's not it, the answer just doesn't pop out of the the machine. Um, it requires somebody to interpret it and think about it a little, and uh, and that requires some expertise. And I, but I've been you know, you know I, but I think it just requires that the the will is there, and those those regulatory bodies that uh, make these decisions sort of deem that this is this is a worthy. Who are the enterprise? I, I certainly think it, it is, and I've been campaigning for it now for, for many years.
0: For someone like me, outside of I suppose medicine and those systems and how they work, so is it a case of you have prepared, you know, these different techniques for uh, investigating the consciousness of of patients in these states that can work at a, you know an ICU level that can, when a patient comes in, you can do an assessment. So whether that you know, and it can adapt to whatever equipment I suppose is is at hand for these these um doctors so is it then a case of you have to then talk to these medical bodies and make your case until they hear you and then I suppose a bit like a select committee at government way
1: it, it is it is quite a lot like that but I mean the problem is it, it... I mean, again, again, this is one of the things that prevents it happening probably is it's not it's not really my job to do that. You know, I'm a neuroscientist. No. I, I'm i around to sort of discover things. And once I've discovered something, I typically move on to the next thing. I don't generally spend a lot of time you know, persuading the various people that need to be persuaded that they should adopt this thing. I just get on with it you know, and, and do the next thing. And, and this is the way that science you know, becomes clinical practice. I mean, there's a, there's a, we have a beautiful example that everybody can relate to. Think about, you know, the way the the COVID nineteen vaccines were rolled out. I mean, everybody has read about, you know, how amazingly quickly this went from being, you know, that science in the laboratory to being, you know, vaccines in in people's arms. And you know, the the story that everybody's getting is that this was extraordinary, and it was extraordinary. It wasn't too fast. It was just that the motivation was there to to make it. Happened quickly and, and all the barriers that typically sort of stand in the way were pushed aside because everybody was invested in this that's not typically how things work you know typically we make scientific discoveries and then uh, you know, maybe maybe twenty years before they actually make it into 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 clinical practice, because they often have to go through sort of prolonged trials. And with things like MRI or techniques like MRI, what, what typically happens is people just naturally start to use them more. I mean, this is this is certainly the case in where our. Methods you know are concerned. As I as I said, there be more than a, a thousand patients scanned using these techniques around the world now, and I, I, you know, probably a, only a I don't know a couple of dozen of them were scanned in my lab. Uh, these are other people around the world have sort of adopted it, and some of them are scientists, some of them are interested. Uh, doctors that you know have a patient that's quite interesting i certainly get calls like that all the time from somebody somewhere in the world that says know, yeah, that's an interesting patient and i'm pretty sure there's something going on can you tell me how to do this this tennis imagery thing and i'll just instruct them to do it and and you know they'll they'll, they'll carry it out so yeah i think it, it just sort of by some kind of process of people gradually adopting it eventually the the the, the regulatory bodies will say okay this is a thing we should be mandating this for every patient but it's a slow
0: process uh, it's, it's not like the COVID-19 vaccines But was Adrian Owen there explaining how his work communicating with patients in comas and vegetative states could find its way more hospitals. If you'd like to hear Adrian and I dig a little deeper into the science of consciousness and the future of brain-reading machines, check out Instant Genius Extra, a bonus podcast available via subscription on Apple's Podcast app. And of course, if you want to learn more about Adrian's work, check out his book Into the Gray Zone, which is published by Faber and Faber in the UK. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as your preferred app store. Alternatively, do come find us online at sciencefocus.com. See you next time.